It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. It felt about 24 hours ago or 36 hours ago, depending on when you're listening, that there was going to be a lot of screaming, a lot of crying, a lot of bitching, a lot of moaning on this edition of Rico because the opener of this series was a disgrace to baseball. The opener of this series was really a disgrace to this entire season. And I have to admit, as confident as I tried to remain after the National Series, I was rattled by what happened on Tuesday night. I mean, I have to admit it. You know, Taiwan Walker being mediocre is one thing, always got a blister. But every effing inning, the Mets had guys on base. Pete Alonso actually grounded into 417 double plays on Tuesday night. And Tuesday night was the first time in which the word that I hate, the word that ticks me off whenever it's been used, started to creep into my little brain, and that is choke. I have to admit it. Now, I took a deep breath. I had a conversation with my old partner, Joe Beningo, on Tuesday morning. Wednesday morning? Yeah, it was after the Tuesday game. He was, bro, we're dead. I got to tell you what, we're done. This team's a joke. And for some reason, that gave me confidence. I don't know why. For some reason, that turned my negative mood into a, ah, you know what? Maybe it's not as bad as I thought. And what we all needed was for the New York Mets to not just sweep a doubleheader from the Pittsburgh Pirates. We needed them to kick some ass. We needed them to splatter their guts all over the field at PNC Park for our mental state. Really? And I know you win 2-1, to one, it counts the same as winning 10 nothing. I understand that. But I think because Tuesday was so grotesque, and because they had just lost back-to-back games prior to that to the Washington Nationals, in which they scored a combined two runs, we needed for our baseball mental health an ass-whooping. Now, did we necessarily get that in Game 1? Not really. There were some scary moments. You know, Tyler Naquin, it's the three-run home already. Escobar had a huge week, which we'll get to. It's a home run. But there was still big moments in this game. Chris Bassett facing Jack Sawinski with guys on base. You know, seventh inning, more guys on base. It was a little bit of nervousness. But they did win the game 5-1. to one. The second game of the doubleheader, that's the gut-splattering kind of performance that we all needed. So before we get deeper into these games... Before we discuss the Max Scherzer injury, the Starling Marte injury, the utter dominance of Jacob deGrom, let's all collectively take a deep breath. The New York Mets are still in first place, sort of, because <laughs> let's be honest, they're tied for first place. They are. They, they allow the Atlanta Braves the chance and the opportunity to catch them, and the Braves did. So while the Mets aren't looking up at the Braves in the standings, and technically they're a half game up, We're tied. It is what it is. When my beautiful, bald friend, and I don't mean Craig Carton, declared the division over two months ago, he's officially wrong because it wasn't over then and it's not over now. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to win the division. That doesn't mean this is going to end in, you know, hellfire and brimstone. It just means that this heavyweight battle of a pennant race is just getting started. Now, Pete tends to be the more negative one than me, even though I've been many, I've had a lot of negativity over the years. But did this two game sweep of a doubleheader cleanse you? 
Or do you still feel a little dirty about the way this team has played? I thought I was coming on here the same way as you did, going to vent the hell out of today. Because the way that I got off air with, with Tiki and Tierney, it was just Everything just piled up, and it was frustrating. And even though uh, the Mets were already beating the Pirates at that point in time, it just felt the Mets picked the worst time to almost blow the division lead. Like, if this doesn't happen early in the season, whatever, it just it, – we can't have nice things. That's how I felt. And Scherzer goes down, all that other stuff. So, yeah, I, I – I didn't want to be the negative guy either, but I felt that pit in my stomach again, and I felt like it's too familiar, that feeling, you know? Yeah, look, I, I have to admit, Tuesday was very, very tough to watch. The opener of this series was brutal because I sat there for three hours, and I, and I wouldn't shut the game off, obviously. one nothing, you're still in the game. 3 nothing, you're sort of still in the game. 4 nothing, it's not over. Oh, wait, Brandon Nimmo, two-run home run, here we go. And then the Pirates just blow the game open because of Buck Showalter's mismanaging, which I'll get to as well. But that was a very reminiscent of bad times kind of game. That's how I would define it. Not reminiscent of this team because, look, this team has not played its best baseball recently, but a lot of this is the Atlanta Braves never lose, and that's continued. You know, even in this game against Oakland, when they wrapped up the two-game series, right out of the gate, they're down 2 nothing, and you're thinking, wow, the Braves may actually lose. Maybe we'll get some help, and that wasn't the case. They storm back. They end up essentially blowing the Oakland A's out. But I do admit that Tuesday was rock bottom. Tuesday felt the opener of this series, in case we're forgetting the days of the week. The opener of this series, after the rain out from Labor Day, that did feel ugly on a lot of levels um really more so than Taiwan Walker who I'm gonna actually sort of defend in a little bit it's gonna be a weak defense but it's gonna be like a sort of defense of him that he's not as bad as we all think he's not good but he's not as bad as we all think that's how I'll phrase it that's a tease for about five minutes from now but the real frustrating part about the opener of this series was their inability to get a big hit because like we talked about after the Washington series on the last edition of Rico, this is about the offense. It's what it's about. You know, we can nitpick Carlos Carrasco's performance from Sunday, but it was about the offense. Same thing with Taiwan Walker in the opener of this series. We could kill him for five innings, four runs. It's not good enough. They couldn't hit. They got two guys on base in the first inning. Pete Alonso grounds into a double play. They got two on, two out in the second inning. Of course, Tomas Nino's not going to come through. They got two on, one out in the third inning. Pete Alonso grounds into a double play. Lead-off man on the fifth inning. They do nothing. And then after Nimmo hits the two-run home run, the offense does nothing against Manny effing Banuelos. I mean, so this was about the offense, and it was about the continuation of what we saw in the Washington series, and that's not only not being able to hit, but you're not hitting mediocre pitching. I don't want to hear about Mitch Keller. Mitch Keller's not that good. Manny Banuelos is not that good. So... What made the opener of this series incredibly frustrating, more so than Taiwan Walker's performance, was the fact that they couldn't hit. Now, here's my, it's not even really a defense of Taiwan Walker. It's just being honest about what he's been in the second half of the year. Because I think we all feared he was going to collapse in the second half like he did last year. And there's a stat going around, which is accurate, that the second half of this season, Taiwan Walker has like a 6-6 ERA. Something of that nature, 6-7 ERA. And it's true. Like, I, I can't deny that. So it's very easy to say Taiwan Walker has collapsed in the second half of the season. He hasn't really collapsed. What he's done is that he is pitching like a fifth starter. 
What I mean by that is look at his outings outside of the one explosion because he had one game that kills his stats. It was the game against the Braves, the fir- the first game of that five game series, I think it was, or not the first game of the five game series. The sec, I forget which game it was. It was early on in that five gamer with the Braves, the one game they lost. He pitched one inning and he allowed eight runs. Well, one inning, eight runs going to kill your numbers. His performances outside of that one game has been mediocre, but not bad. You know, five innings, four runs, it's not a death sentence for you. If your offense hits, you can win that game. I'm not trying to say it's a great performance. It's not. He wasn't great. He gave up a bomb to Rodolfo Castro. I get it. He gives up an RBI single to Brian Reynolds. I get all of it. Like, I'm not saying he was good. I'm saying if you look at Walker's performances in the second half of the year outside of the one explosion, he's basically been five innings, three runs. Five and a third, two runs. Five innings, four runs. I'm not saying that's great, but what I am saying is that's capable fifth starter stuff, which is all Taiwan Walker should be. The problem is when you don't score runs. That's the, that's why I'm telling you, and maybe I'm alone in this, and that's fine. In the opener of this series, I was more pissed off by the lack of offense than I was Taiwan Walker because if this team is hitting, take the second game of the doubleheader. When, look, I thought, unfortunately for Oviedo, he was being squeezed. I thought there were some pitches in that second inning, specifically to Pete Alonso, where he struck him out. But if you're facing Johan Oviedo and you're getting to the bullpen in the second inning, then five innings, four runs looks a lot different. So I don't, I don't think I'm really defending Taiwan Walker. I'm just being real about that stat that's going around that I think is misleading. He had one performance in which he was awful. The rest of his performances have been just mediocre. Would I like him to be better? Yes, I'd like him to be the first half Taiwan Walker. But I think one thing we've learned over the last two years is that's not him. That's not who he is. Five innings, three runs should be capable stuff if your offense doesn't have their head up their asses. No, I and, and the other thing too is I've also seen other people say that Taiwan Walker has been the third best pitcher on this team and that, no. to me, is an insult to Chris Bassett because if you saw what he did today versus the Pirates, it was, I mean, it, it looked like he was facing a minor league team. Well, it's not only that, and he was great. He was absolutely fantastic, and he's been really good over the last month. But the reason why Chris Bassett, you know, if we're looking at the entire season, because I know Ty's had some great moments, but Chris Bassett, I'm, I, I described it this way a few weeks ago, and I, I continue to think it's this with him. He always pitches one more inning than he should. You know, I think there's a lot of times where you're watching a baseball game and you say, okay, that guy's done after six. Not just because of pitch count, but just because of feel. And Chris Bassett's one of those guys, and there aren't a lot of them, there really aren't, who says, no, I'll keep going, and I'll push myself. And I think that's really, really important. It's important because Jacob DeGrom has been babied for the most part and didn't pitch for the first half of the year. It's important because... You know, Carlos Carrasco just missed a few weeks. It's important because David Peterson, when he starts, isn't allowed to really go deep into games. It's important because Max Scherzer's missed time. You need guys to eat innings. And I think there's been a lot of times this season where Chris Bassett will go an extra inning. Plus, he's just been probably their most consistent starter. And that includes everybody. Because Scherzer and DeGrom get penalized from the fact they don't pitch every five days. And they haven't. That's just the reality of it. 
So I think when you look at reliability in terms of pitching every five days, you look at consistency, you look at ability to give you innings when sometimes you desperately need it. Chris Bassett's been probably their most consistent starter. So it's not even a question. He's the third best starter in terms of, obviously, if Jake and Scherzer are there, he's your third guy. Who's your fourth guy as a debate? Right now, it's tough to trust Taiwan Walker, but you're going to need to see Carlos Carrasco pitch better than what we saw in his first start back. But that's not even the issue I worry about. I just worry about the offense because it had been bad for about a 26-game period, as we described in the last Rico. So they broke out because Tuesday was an abomination. They broke out a little bit in the opener of this doubleheader. Eduardo Escobar, and this is really, really encouraging, and I think that was the best part of what happened. You know, Tyler Naquin hits the big home run, the big bomb of a three-run homer, and he breaks out of a slump a little bit, and they may need him with the uncertainty around Starling Marte. More on that injury in a little bit. But to see Eduardo Escobar just pounding the baseball all over the pace, getting on base two, three times a game, hitting a bomb of a home run, coming out in the second game of the doubleheader and getting four hits, it's really, really encouraging. Because if... Marte is out for an extended period of time. Not going to do this in a short period of time, but an extended period of time. One of the ways you can fill that hole is not Tyler Naquin. He's an option, but not necessarily him. One way you can do it is Eduardo Escobar. And what I mean by that is Luis Guillerme is going to come back and he's going to play as he should. He's so good defensively. He gives you battles at pl- at the plate. He's not a slugger by any stretch, but he at least gives you quality at bats. You could play Eduardo Escobar third, Luis Guillerme at second, and Jeff McNeil in right. I don't think we should rule out the fact that Jeff McNeil, as great as he's been defensively at second base, is an option in the outfield. Like the options to replace Marte, if it's Longer than we fear. Because right now the update on him is it's day-to-day. Buck hasn't ruled out the IL. They're going to see how his middle finger reacts to the non-displacement, whatever the hell it is. Who knows? I don't even know. All I know is when's he going to play again. It's all I know. So if this turns into an IL stint like Buck suggested, that's a way to fill that spot. Not just giving the job to Tyler Naquin every day. Because if Tyler Naquin is striking striking out eight at-bats in a row, like we saw a few weeks ago, we don't want to see him out there. But if Eduardo Escobar is going to hit, he's going to play. That's the way it works. That's the way it should work. And Luis Guillermo will find a way to play, no doubt, because of his glove. But Eduardo Escobar, especially left-handed, that's the encouraging thing. Because he was about to become a platoon player with Guillermo, where he only played against lefties. Well, this onslaught he's been on has been batting lefty against right-handed pitching. So let's not discount Escobar third, Guillerme second, McNeil and Wright. That's an option. I would have suggested you could call up Mark Vientos and play him at third and move Escobar to second, McNeil and Wright. But one thing we learned, they hate Mark Vientos. So that's not an option. And I, I, I shouldn't have even mentioned it because how insulting is that to even mention the name Mark Vientos. But look, the Marte injury sucks. I I don't know if you felt this way, Hoff. They get hit so much, and they continue to get hit so much, that you're waiting for someone to get hit and for it to be serious. Because they've really avoided the serious injury for the most part from all the hit batsmen that they've had this season. 
I, I mean, I think Demarte's pretty serious. I mean, I think this is the most crucial one, and this is why I was always pissed when people were like, well, the Mets are getting hit so much. Why don't they do something about it? I'm like, because what? So they can have a brawl and someone can get hurt? Like, I'm, we're trying to avoid injury here. We want this team to be together for as long as possible. We don't need a long suspension. We don't need any of that nonsense. But what, Marte's been hit how many times this season? Was it the 19, the number? It- it feels like a ton. I mean, Mark Canna gets hit a lot, but it seems like that's part of his game. He's always gotten hit a lot. But when Marte gets hit, it always seems to be really scary. Yeah, well, it's in the. It's on, so inside. It's on his freaking knuckles. I mean, I, I mean, that's inside. It's not like he's holding the bat out like, all right, hit me. It's inside. And he look. If we made a list of guys in the lineup, you can't lose. I'm not saying he's number one. I think Pete Alonso, despite his recent slump, is probably the number one guy. But he's towards the top. You know, take your pick. Alonzo, McNeil, Lindor, Starling Marte, Brandon Nimmo. Really those those top four hitters that Buck Showalters had so consistently playing. So Marte's a valuable guy. I, I think that because... I don't want to say what I'm going to say because it's backfired with what happened against the Nationals in the first game against the Pirates. But what I'm really trying to allude to is they're playing teams that they're better than. They're playing teams in the Marlins case that I think now have a nine-game losing streak. Whatever it's up to, they do have one more game before they may play the Mets on Friday, and I hope they win. Sandy Alcantara's pitching, so Mets got actually lucky they're going to miss Sandy Alcantara. Uh, So he pitches on Thursday, and hopefully the Marlins win, but that's besides the point. This should not be a deal-breaker when you're playing Miami and you're playing Chicago. You know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't a series against the Braves, and they obviously missed Starling Marte in a series against the Braves, still won two out of three. So I hope he's back soon, but that's not an excuse for not beating the crap out of the Miami Marlins. Same thing with the Max Scherzer injury. Like, assuming he misses the two starts, he's probably going to miss. And then that's it. Then he comes back, and he's facing the Brewers in Milwaukee, which is about a week and a half from now it shouldn't impact how they should perform against the teams they're about to play. Now, again, I know they've already lost three games to the Nationals and Pirates. I understand that. But that should not be the difference between beating the Cubs and losing to the Cubs. No, and and I agree. And that's why today, when they were talking about, I got asked about the Scherzer injury. Are you nervous? I go, no. All it means to me is that we're getting prepared for the playoffs. I need all these guys to be healthy for the playoffs. And I was told, oh, what, so you're just giving away the division? I go, no. The division is still very much the New York Mets because it. the Mets are still talented. I don't care who's slumping. It, they can break out of it at any point in time. Like I talked about Escobar. This is exactly the person that we need well, right now to break out of this. Okay, but, but, but you said something, and I heard this on the broadcast too, it, almost like a debate of do you, do you prioritize being healthy for the postseason more so than winning the division. First of all, those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Not at all, right. You should be smart about your injuries, and you should still try to win the division. The way I would look at it with Max Scherzer is this. Like I just said, you're playing the Cubs, you're playing the Pirates, you should beat them. Whether it's David Peterson or Max Scherzer pitching, that shouldn't be the difference between winning or losing against these teams. I would view it this way. I need Max Scherzer healthy for the Atlanta series. That's how I'd phrase it. Like, yes, I want them ready for the postseason, but winning the division is important. And I think we all need to recognize that. It doesn't mean they can't win the World Series if they're in the wild card series, but the road's a lot more difficult. Having to win two extra games is not easy. First of all, you can easily lose two games. I don't care who the hell's pitching. 
And then obviously the road is difficult because then you turn around immediately and play a best of five and then a best of seven. And we talked about the oddness of the off days around the best of five and the best of seven. So winning the division matters. We don't live in a world like it's 2005 where the Yankees and Red Sox are in a pennant race and it doesn't matter who wins the wild card. Does anybody remember who won the division in 2005? Was it the Yankees or the Red Sox? They finished tied. It didn't matter, though. Like, it literally didn't matter. There was so little that mattered about winning a division. Now it matters. It just does. So I I don't buy this notion of they're not thinking about the division or they shouldn't think about the division. But I think you need to be smart when Max Scherzer's got a side issue and he's saying it's fatigue. The one thing about the Max thing that, that jumped out at me was Scherzer made it seem, and maybe he's full of crap, that the only reason he's going on the I.L. was to get an extra body up here. Because he even said, well, I know I was going to miss a start. You know, I could be back relatively soon. But for the team, they wanted an extra body. That one kind of bothers me because two reasons. Number one, you have an off day on Thursday. You had an extra player for the doubleheader. You already have extra players because the rosters have expanded. Do the New York Mets need to put Max Scherzer on the IL so they could have Yoan Lopez for five extra days? That one bothers me. Like, that one, I, I don't fully understand. And, look, Max could just be speaking out of his ass right now and maybe protecting himself. Like, yeah, I'm ready to go, but the team needs an extra guy. The extra guy is Yoan Lopez, who may not pitch by the way. And if he does, it's probably going to be in freaking mop-up duty. And oh, by the way, Buck, you used Adam Adovino in mop-up duty, which I'll get to coming up too. I get to everything I say I'm going to get to. We'll get to that because I had an issue with that. I'll explain why. So the Scherzer explanation was strange. I'm not a fan of they needed the extra body. There's 28 guys on the roster now. You had a 29th guy for these two games. You have an off day on Thursday. Yes, the Mets are now about to play. I think it's 13 straight days. Three against Miami. The three against Chicago. The four against Pittsburgh. And then three against Milwaukee before they get another off day. I get it's a lot of games. But you're probably going to activate Scherzer, hopefully, in the midst of that. So the only thing that would worry me, Hoff, is... You can say it's minor, and you can say he should make his next start. I need to see it. Because we were also told it was possible Max was going to start on Friday. So my only worry is not the actions of him going on the IL. My worry is, okay, let's see when he starts again. And then when he does start again, hopefully he can pitch. Because this was the fear, and this is the negative when you sign older guys. And I'm not regretting signing Max Scherzer by any means, but they break down. It's the concern we all have about Jacob DeGrom, that he can break down at any moment. I'll get to DeGrom, too. Let me respond or at least get into why Buck pissed me off that he went to Adam Adovino in a 10-0 game in the finale of this three-game series. It wasn't that he went to Adovino with a 10-0 lead. It was what he did the night before. So Buck Showalter is the most prepared manager in baseball. He completely understands we got a doubleheader tomorrow. And he also understands that there's an off day on Thursday. And he's a believer that while you want to have your bullpen rested, you don't want to have them too rested. So Seth Lugo comes into a 5-1 game, pitches a clean eighth inning, and then gets the ninth. Because, hey, I want him to get work in. 
He's not going to pitch the second game of the doubleheader. We have an off day Thursday. I want him to get some work in. I know you can't predict the future if you're Buck, but Adam Ottavino pitching back-to-back days is an option. We've actually seen it. So when you're playing the Pittsburgh Pirates on Tuesday night, after you had a rainout on Monday, okay? You had a rainout on Monday, so it's an off day. You're playing Tuesday night. You're down 4-2 to two because Brandon Nimmo hit a bomb of a home run. All right? Taiwan Walker went the first five. Michael Givens comes in, pitches the sixth. And now you go to Bryce Montes de Oca in the bottom of the seventh inning after you just made it 4-2. to two. We have no idea what to expect from Montes de Oca other than looking at his baseball reference page, which says the some bitch walks a lot of guys. And he's also not someone anybody could trust. But here's the thing. It's a 4-2 to two game. You have a chance to come back. So he goes to Bryce the Montes de Oca. The name is just, it's a great name. I just, I, I get forgetful sometimes. I love writing it down on my scorebook, though. Montes de Oca. Do you want me to get you a jersey of it or something like that, too, or no? No, please don't. <laughs> I don't think it's going to last. Though. That'll be your secondary podcast after the Rico Bronya? Yes, the Bryce Montes de Oca. It reminds me of Vic Black for some reason. Remember Vic Black, the reliever they got from the Pirates? Yeah. Just a random reliever who strikes a lot of guys out. You think, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe he's the next Dylan Batances. Okay. (laughs) So he goes to Montes de Oca. I'm slightly annoyed about it, but I'm not pissed because, okay, fine. It's the seventh inning. I get it. He somehow gets through the seventh and he gets bailed out by a great, great defensive play by Pete Alonso. Okay. Mets do nothing in the eighth inning. It's the bottom of the eighth inning. It's a four to two game. They're in the game. And he sends the Oka out again for the eighth inning. You know Adam Adovino's got a pitch. You have no idea what the doubleheader's going to hold with Bassett and DeGrom, but he's not going to pitch both ends of the doubleheader. He may pitch one end of the doubleheader. But if he pitches, it's a good thing. It means you have a lead, right? Why not go to him on Tuesday? And it's made to look worse when you don't go to him on Tuesday. Montes to Oka and Tommy Hunter basically uh, take the game and flush it down the toilet. And then you use Adovino the next day when it's 10-0. I, I know that it's tough to predict what the next day is going to look like. So you almost have to just take a gamble. But in a 4-2 to two game, and I, I see a lot of managers do this. Aaron Boone's been killed about this for years is that it's not like you're giving up on the game. I don't think you're ever giving up on the game by using a different reliever, but you're not making as great of an effort to keep the game close. And you have better relievers. I mean, there are actually relievers in this Met bullpen, as much as we have vilified it, that have been good. So it just bothered me. It bothered me on Tuesday when DeOka pitched the second inning. I was saying this to Beningo because we were talking about this uh, Wednesday morning. We had a conversation, a debriefing, because we're, we're actually going to do a show together this Saturday. It's uh, Bedingo and Roberts on Saturdays. Still doing our show with Craig Monday through Friday, me and Joe on Saturdays. And he was just pissed, period, about that Oka coming in. And I was more pissed by him coming out for the eighth, because I think when you got the scoreless inning out of him, it's like, great, all right, got a scoreless inning out of him, let's call it a day. So when he then goes to Adovino in a 10-0 game, I know there's nothing to be annoyed about because the Mets are about to sweep a doubleheader, which they do a lot. But it was like, come on, man. Why don't you use them the day before? Now, I also get, Pete, they weren't coming back. The offense was dead. I mean, 
I don't think it would have made a difference, though. Brandon Nimmo would have come up as the lead run, potentially, if Adovino pitched the scoreless eighth. But when you're in a close game, try to keep it close. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, I the, the thing, too, is, though, we always talk about how the Mets seem to make a lot of soft hits, but those soft hits lead to big things at times. And you just deflate the team when you leave something like that and the game gets blown out. So, like, the Mets have found ways to make comebacks, give them the best opportunity. I'm not yeah. saying that he went went was trying to lose the game, but you're right. I mean, you you we know the writing was on the wall just by keeping him in there. And I do hate that. I understand that you want um, Adovino to get some work, but that pisses me off. Like, there was zero reason to say if something did happen. Say if he had a bad outing, and it, it, 10 nothing or whatever, nothing's really bad is going to really happen, but... What if he did have a bad outing? I, I hate that sour taste, that waste of, a, of an arm for, in that type of game. Yeah, because I, I know you can't predict. Now, obviously, we have no idea what's going to happen the next day. But I'd rather be more aggressive in doing it. Again, knowing you have an off day coming up on Thursday. Didn't cost them, though. I mean, what cost them is that they didn't hit. And they certainly didn't give you any sign that they were going to hit. By the way, one quick thing, because I do want to give you a number to back up my uh, premise on Taiwan Walker about how his second half has not been as bad as maybe we think. If you take out the one start, and I know it's tough to take the start out, but if you take the start out, his second half ERA is 3.95, which is not amazing, but it's what I've described that he is, which is that he hasn't been terrible in the second half. That's better than it was last year. I think last year was it was like eight. No, no, yes, I know. (laughs) Last year's second half was a choke job and a half. And the number I've been hearing is, well, Taiwan Walker in the second half this year has like a 680 RA, which is true, but it includes a one-inning-eight run performance, which is just going to murder your ERA, which it has. Now, let's get to Jake, because Jake is just, oh, my God. They have to give this man whatever the hell he wants. And yes, there's injury risk. And yes, he doesn't throw 120 pitches. All those critiques are fine. He is a magician. He has that rocky first inning. Rocky in that O'Neill Cruz hits one 100 million miles an hour first pitch of the game. He gets the big double play, gets the big defensive play by Pete Alonso. He's throwing his curveball a ton this year. I, I noticed that in his last start against the Dodgers. You saw it again in this start against the Pirates. But then he has another one of those stretches, and he does this every time he's out there where he just mows down 12 in a row. 15 in a row, 11 in a row. Sometimes it's at the beginning of a game and you start to fantasize about that perfect game that's going to end when Buck pulls him after six perfect innings or seven perfect innings. But then he gets into that groove after the first inning. Bing, 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 one, two, three. Bing, 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 one, two, three. Bing, 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 one, two, three. He's through 75 pitches in six innings. And I thought this was the game. Hey, you take that. You take the wrapper off, Jake. Double header. You need this game. Let him throw 110 pitches. But the Mets gave him so much freaking offense that after seven innings, I'm thinking to myself, get his ass out the game. I don't need him in the game anymore. Get him out. So 91 pitches, seven scoreless innings, and some of the numbers, and I'm not going to go through them because I'm sure people have seen him on Twitter or they say it on the broadcast. Some of the absurd numbers of Jacob deGrom, like they boggle your mind. The amount of starts where he hasn't allowed a run. The consecutive starts of allowing three runs or less. The amount of games in a row in which he's retired at least 12 in a row. Like, take your pick on the absurd numbers. The reality is this, and this is not debatable. He is one of the most dominant forces we've ever seen. 
Now, I know he doesn't go nine innings, so you can't compare it to Sandy Koufax. But when he's out there, when he pitches, we have never seen anything like this. And that's why you just cherish it and you hope that he can continue to pitch. So I'm going to give you the one number I looked up that I think matters to most Met fans. And it's not about ERAs because we know his ERA is stupid since whatever time period you want to come up with. We know he strikes a million guys out. We know he doesn't walk anybody. So how about we spend a couple of seconds changing the narrative about Jacob DeGrom, a narrative that I still push, a narrative that I've heard Pete still push. And it's the narrative that, boy, the Mets don't support Jacob DeGrom. The Mets don't win when Jacob DeGrom pitches. The Mets don't play defense when Jacob DeGrom pitches. All that was true. It was absurdly true in 2018 when he won his first Cy Young, and it was true in 2019. In 2019, the Mets, as a team, forget his win-loss record, as a team, the Mets were under 500 when Jacob DeGrom took them out. It's almost impossible to do that. And in 2019, they weren't bad. Like, they, they won more games than they lost. They had a lot of games that they blew, but they were not a 90-loss team in 2019. So all that was true. But if you take a look at 2020, which was a shortened season, I acknowledge, and Jake almost won a Cy Young, and you look at 2021, which for him was a shortened season because of the injury, and you look at this season, okay? You take those three seasons, really bits of three seasons, because none of them were full years, one because of the pandemic, and the last two, obviously, because of the health. Jacob DeGrom has made 34 starts, so basically a full season. I'm not even going to bother telling you the ERA. You already know it's crazy good, but here's what matters, and it's changed. In those 34 games, the New York Mets are 24-10. and 10. The Mets win when Jacob DeGrom pitches. They do. I know there are certain games you think about, like that finale against the Braves of the four-game series, and say, oh, they lost that game. DeGrom should have finished the inning. I wish he did finish the inning. I wish Brandon Nimmo didn't have a Swiss cheese arm. I wish Pete Alonso allowed Lindor to steal second base. I wish a lot of things. But the bottom line is this, and we have to accept this as Met fans, and we have to celebrate this as Met fans. They actually do win when he pitches. That's an old narrative. It's a narrative from 2019, absolutely. It was just incredible to watch how bad this baseball team was behind Jacob DeGrom. They wouldn't score runs. They would play bad defense. They would always find a way to lose. It wasn't Jake's fault. It was everybody else's fault. Same thing in 2018. That has changed. It changed in 2020, though we sort of forget that because it was a very weird season. It changed last year when he pitched, and it's continued to change this year. They win when he's on the mound. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise. The guy pitches to a 1-6 ERA. They should freaking win every time he pitches. In fact, I can make the argument that 24-10 and 10 is underachieving. They should be 32-2 and two in the 34 starts that he makes. But we have seen this change, that they do win when he pitches. Now, I'm not trying to troll, but what's his actual record in the 24-10? and 10? I don't even know. I mean, I, honestly, I could look it up, and it's good because, like, think about it right now. Jacob's 5-1 and one this season. So right, right out of the gate, he's 5-1. and one. And I think last year, before he got hurt, he was 7-2. and two. So I think the win-loss record is good. Um, but, it's dude, it's just so overrated. And, look, a part of it is him. I admit that. If you don't go deeper into games, there's a better chance you're going to get a no decision. Uh, all right, his record is 15-5. and five. So, oh, that's good. 
Yeah, no, no one absolutely follows it. Look, he had two seasons in his career, okay? Two seasons in his career in which he was historically good. He won Cy Young's, and he had a lackluster win-loss record. 2018, he had a 170 ERA, won the Cy Young, was 10-9. and nine. In 2019, he had a 2-4-3 ERA, won the Cy Young, and he was 11-8. and eight. So he had these incredible years, and he was only 21-17. and 17. And yes, the Mets lost more games than they won. But over the last three years, and yes, it's parts of three years because of the fact that he was hurt and there was a pandemic. Four and two in 2020, seven and two in 21, and five and one now. So it's actually um, uh, 16 and five now in the last three seasons. So they do win when he pitches. I mean, it, you know, just it's just changed. I think we're so used to what happened in 18 and 19 that we just can't get used to the fact that, yeah, they actually win when he pitches. And it also and, it also feels like he's always a nail biter, but they win, and that's all that matters. If that's the case, it's look, all that matters. And we want him on the mound in the playoffs. I mean, we want him on the mound in the playoffs. We want him on the mound against the Atlanta Braves when they play that monumental three-game series, and who knows what the standings are going to look like when we get to that day. Uh, the hope is the Braves are about to play, not that these are crazy impossible games, but they're about to play six games on the West Coast against the Mariners and the Giants. The Mariners are a playoff team. The Giants are at least a somewhat competent team. And I would look at these six games and say, can they lose three times? Is that possible? Can they go three and three? Am I asking too much? Or are the Braves just going to go six and oh? <laughs> I mean, are they, are they just going to rattle off more victories? Because at this rate, they may. They've won seven in a row. Uh, no matter what period of time you want to go back to, their record is absurd. I think the one that jumps out at me the most, well, there's two of them. Since, I think, May 1st, they are 63-24, and 24, which is, I mean, that's 98 Yankees kind of stuff. But here's the one, I guess this one sort of, not that, that one impresses me the most. Here's the one that's like a real punch in the balls. Since the Mets beat the crap out of them at City Field and won four out of five, and we were all just so giddy about what the Mets accomplished one-on-one with the Braves, the defending world champions responded in their last 27 games by going 22 and five. And one of those losses is against the Mets. They did win three out of four. So they've responded every time. And so I'm glad the Mets were able to finally take care of their business and they're going to have to continue to take care of their business, but they are being afforded no margin for error because the Braves don't lose. Now, six games coming up, Mariners and Giants. I'm asking for three and three. I'm asking for that. I'm asking for the Mets to go five and one. If that happens, boom, the Mets are back up by two and a half games. It's like magic. Voila. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's no way that the Braves can keep this pace up, is it? What? What do you mean? What, what do you mean they can't? They've kept this pace up since June, dude. I know. They got to burn out soon. They're going to go flat into the playoffs, right? I don't know. Dude, I'll tell you this. I don't know what's going to happen in the playoffs. The playoffs are a completely different animal. You just want to get there. You want to be relatively healthy. And you want to get hot at the right time. I've seen too many examples of this, whether it's from the Mets team like 2015. How good were they really in 2015? Yet they beat the Dodgers in five. Uh, They beat the Cubs in four. Look at the Nationals in 2019. So 
I don't know what's going to happen in the postseason, and I don't even care because the Mets and the Braves are going to be separated in the postseason. Like, they would not play each other until the National League Championship Series. No matter who wins the division, they would just be separated on other sides of the bracket. So the Braves in the playoffs mean nothing to me, unless we're fortunate enough to play them. And I'd sign for that right now. You're telling me it's Mets, Braves, NLCS. Let's go. I'm in. I'm, I'll take my chances. I'm in for that. So I don't know what's going to happen to the postseason, but it's more the Braves have a more difficult schedule. We've gone through that. They do play the Philadelphia Phillies a lot. This portion of the schedule, while not difficult, features competent teams like the Mariners and like the Giants. But when you say, and my dad says this all the time, oh, they're not this good. They'll cool off. Well, my question to you is when? Because they've been playing this kind of baseball. I just gave you the numbers. They're 63 and 24. That's not cooling off, Pete. I mean, listen, I just feel like we've talked and looked at the best teams ever, right? Look at Seattle, yeah. Seattle Mariners. You look at that. That team had an incredible regular season. Playoffs, they were nothing. It, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same oh. thing. That's, so I'm just saying, like, the Braves are unbelievable. That's great, and they they are the they won last year, so they're the defending champions. But I think it's gonna burst soon. I don't care what happens to them in the playoffs, though. That, <laughs> I'm saying before October fifth because I want this division. I think we all want this division. I know. And look, I know. the the one thing is because here's a, a thing Joe and I disagreed about uh, when we spoke on the phone. I'm sure we'll talk about it on the air is he says, if they don't win this division, they can't win the World Series. Look, the road is more difficult. No doubt you're giving yourself more of a chance to get picked off, more of a chance for there to be an injury, more of a chance for bad crap to happen. No doubt about it. But if the Mets lose this division, as disappointed as we'll all be, October 7th, we're going to pack City Field and we're going to root our asses off and be optimistic in that series against the Phillies or the Padres. We just are. And if they win that series and they're off to L.A., we'll be thinking, oh, we beat these bastards during the regular season. Let's go. So I want to remind everybody, not that I want this, because I don't want this. I do not want that wild card series. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be a part of it, okay? But if they don't win this division, it's not a death sentence. It sucks, It would be a big disappointment, especially when you spend 99% of the season in first place. But it is not a end-all, be-all death sentence. I'll ask you this, though. Before they play the three games, September 30th, October 1st, and October 2nd, monumental three games, Mets-Braves. Mets need to win one of those games to secure the tiebreaker. The uh, The Braves play the Mariners, the Giants, the Phillies, the Nationals, the Phillies, the Nationals. That's who they play. The Mets play the Marlins, Cubs, Pirates, Brewers, A's, Marlins. Right now, we're basically tied. Let's be honest. The half game up, give me a break. We're tied. What is a reasonable goal? Like, would you be okay if I told you we're a game out? Because, that look, you win two out of three. Boom, tiebreaker. Tied for first place. Great. What's that number of, all right, get me here at the minimum, and I'd be happy? I think will be three games up. Well, if we're three games up, I'm, I'm having a freaking party. Because then, well, I wouldn't say that. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> I'd at least go into the series saying, okay, <laughs> let's just win one game. <laughs> one freaking game. That's all we need. And then it's over, pretty much. You know? 
But I, I, I feel listen. If the team that showed up for the doubleheader continues, and it's gonna be tough because I, I say this all the time. Even though we say it's a soft schedule, the the teams that you're playing, they know they're soft. They want to be ball breakers. They want to bust your 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 playoff, uh, you know, goals. And these kids are trying to make teams too. So of course it's gonna be competitive at times. But technically the, the Mets should roll over them, and they have to they have to play well. Well, so far during the uh, rollover part of your schedule, the New York Mets are three and three. <laughs> Obviously losing two out of three to Washington, winning two out of three to Pittsburgh. I I don't know. If Buck is viewing it this way, I'm sure he is because I do, I do think he thinks long term. What my goal would be, and I think with enough off days, because the Mets actually have after tomorrow's off day or today's off day, depending on when you're listening, the Thursday off day, the New York Mets have three more off days in this regular season. And they're all bunched together. September 22nd, September 26th, September 29th. That's a lot of off days. So assuming no rainouts, they'll have a lot of ability to move their rotation around however they deem fit not necessarily based on rest based on matchup because what I need to have is Scherzer and DeGrom in two of the three games against the Atlanta Braves preferably with one of them pitching the Friday game because if they pitch the Friday game they're an option to come back and close the regular season out on Wednesday October 5th. And if you don't need them on Wednesday, October 5th, or you deem that risk too high, you can hold them back and have them ready for a wild card series. If you have the other guy, DeGrom or Scherzer, whatever order you want to come up with, though I have my preference, pitching either on Saturday or Sunday, they would be lined up to open up the wild card series if that's the series you're in. But I think, assuming health, and obviously that's very important, especially with Max going on the I.L., it is a must, and there's no excuse with two off days right around the series, essentially, to have both of those guys lined up for the three games against the Atlanta Braves in Atlanta because I don't know what the standings are going to say. I don't know what spot we're going to be in. Even if you're right, Pete, and the Mets are up three, you're still in a spot where you got to win a game. You lose all three, it's tied. They win the tiebreaker, and now destiny's out of your hands, as much as I hate that phrase. So... Even if you're three up, you go into that series saying, God, I got to win a game. I got to find a way to win one. So we'll see. But the clock is ticking. Uh, I do feel better. I think we should all feel better based on sweeping this doubleheader against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then the hope is going into this weekend against the Marlins that the Met Bats could keep it going. Uh, Buck Showalter didn't commit to who would start the opener. Logic says David Peterson. I guess it could be Trevor Williams. The reason he hasn't said anything is that Taiwan Walker's dealing with a blister issue, so he may not be ready to go on Sunday. The only thing we know is Carlos Carrasco is going to make his second start back from the IL on Saturday. So however you cut it, it's not the strength of the Met rotation going up against the Miami Marlins. You're really looking at pitchers four, five, and six, potentially seven, pitching this three-game series against Miami. Carlos Carrasco's your fourth at best. Taiwan Walker's your fifth if he makes the start. David Peterson's your sixth. And if Trevor Williams is forced to make your start, that's basically a seventh starting pitcher. But the Marlins haven't hit. Their offense has been historically bad. And hopefully this Met offense, which doesn't have to deal with Sandy Alcantara, they could at least continue the momentum they have from what they did to the Pittsburgh Pirates in the finale of the doubleheader in which everybody hit. 
I mean, even Daniel Vogelback, who was 0 for his first four, had what I thought was actually a significant RBI single in the eighth inning, not for the score, but for him, for the fact that maybe that gets him going. Because Vogelback goes out there and plays every single day against right-handed pitching. And could that change with Guillerme coming back? Could Escobar become more of an option at DH? He could be. Look, Escobar's going to play if he hits, like I said earlier. So even with Guillerme coming back, even if Marte is healthy, I think you still find a way to get him into the lineup. And maybe the guy who loses ABs is Daniel Vogelback. Maybe the guy who loses more ABs is Darren Ruff, who looks lost. What a mess he's been. So J.D. Davis had a home run. Yeah, nah, I'm not even going to bring that up. It is what it is. The deal's done. We move on. So big weekend coming up against Miami because every weekend's big. They need to win freaking games. Anything else off? Uh, I think we're pretty set. I mean, do you agree? Did you hear that the uh, visual take from today from BT saying that Pete Alonso's not a superstar? I don't care. <laughs> I, don't, I don't give a crap. I don't care about what a superstar is or a star is. <laughs> They can discuss that on their show. I don't give a shit. I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter to me. I need Pete Alonzo to wake up. I need Pete Alonzo to get hot. I need Pete Alonzo. And I thought, you know, I'll say this about Pete. I did think the drop to the two-hole, that that brings that up. So, not that I give a crap about that topic, but I do care about Pete Alonzo. And with Marte getting hurt, I was curious what Buck was going to do with the lineup. Back in the day, I feel so old school. Back in the day, when a guy was slumping, Bobby Valentine would hit him in the two-hole. Now, figuring they'd get more pitches to hit, figuring they would think more about contact, thinking more about, hey, let me move the runner from first to second when the leadoff man gets on. Now, I don't think two uh, second-place hitters do that anymore. I don't think that's a thing in 2022. But I always remember, hey, guys in a slump, let's move him to the two-hole. So when I saw Pete was going into the two-hole in both games of this doubleheader, I liked it. Not that I thought that the world had gone backwards where, yeah, batting second, you're going to get pitches to hit. But what does he do right out of the gate in the opener of the doubleheader? He rips a double. What does he do two innings later? Goes the other way with a single. What does he do in game two of the doubleheader? Draws a walk when which he really should have struck out. Has a base hit to left center field. Has a base hit to right field. Look, Pete hasn't hit a lot of home runs recently. We all know that. But... If he could at least hit, (laughs) if he could at least be that all-around hitter that he has become this season, I think we could live through his batting slump or his power slump a lot more. So they need him to hit. They need Lindor to hit. That's the main reason why this offense has struggled. We could talk about the production they have getting now from the bottom of the order, at least what they did in the doubleheader, Escobar getting hot, things like that. If this offense is going to groove again, They need their two run producers to do the grooving. And that's Lindor and that's Alonzo. I think when Marte's back, Alonzo goes right back to cleanup. So I don't think this is a permanent thing by any stretch of the imagination. I had a crazy idea. And it's a terrible idea. So I I warn you, people are going to hate it. They're going to say, Evan, shut up. But hear me out. There was talk about shaking up the lineup because they weren't hitting. And my retort always is, with what? Like, just saying shaking it up doesn't mean anything. Like, what's your idea? Well, Jeff McNeil should hit higher. Okay, well, where? Like, who should be dropped? Should Lindor bat sixth? Okay, if that's your opinion. Should Marte drop in the order? Should Alonzo? Like, what do you want to do? So I was getting a little, I was getting a little kooky. I was thinking of dropping Brandon Nimmo. And hear me out on this. 
If you lead off Marte, McNeil, Lindor, Alonzo, so basically McNeil takes Nimmo's spot and you hit Brandon Nimmo ninth, I'm a big fan of having a guy who hitting ninth be a guy who can get on base. I don't love having a guy batting ninth hitting 170. I don't. And that's James McCann. I don't love having a guy batting ninth who gets on base 26% of the time, and that's Tomas Nitto. And I think I'm being nice. I like having a guy that gets on base, and the reason I say that is because the guy on deck is a good hitter. Brandon Immo's your leadoff hitter. I like when he comes up with guys on base, don't you? Well, if the guy batting ninth, who essentially hits ahead of the guy batting first, can't get on base, then... Less guys are getting on base for your better hitters. So, I, trust me, I understand the negative of it, which is why would I take plate appearances away from Brandon Nimmo? I just, and I don't know how to make it work with this lineup. I like having a guy who bats ninth who can get on base because that guy gets on base from my sluggers for not just Nimmo, but for Marte, but for Lindor, but for Alonzo. So, it was kind of a crazy idea. I actually wouldn't do it. It was just a thought because I've always had that thought of I need more guys in the bottom of the order that get on base. I'd rather have my crappiest hitter batting seventh or eighth than ninth. Well, it's funny because I actually tweeted that out a couple weeks ago. I think it was because people, again, when we were talking about that, I said the only person that would move in that lineup, or the only place you could really switch with Nimmo is McNeil, put him first. And I said the same thing about um, Nimmo. But the, here's my thing, and I, this is you. You, t- you tell me what's more valuable. Nimmo leading off in the, in, the, whether, in the first inning of every game or whatever it is and seeing all those pitches, and really it's about getting on base and getting those hands more walks or McNeil making contact. Because McNeil, they have, if you look at them, when they lead off an inning, their numbers are almost identical on base percentage. The biggest difference is McNeil will get on base by hitting and Nimmo by walks. Yeah, I like McNeil in RBI situations. That would be my answer to that. Like, right now, if you gave me a choice, first and third, one out, name anybody on the Mets you want up, it's probably Jeff McNeil. So... I think I the answer to that is there's a lot of ways to answer that. I prefer Jeff McNeil in RBI situations more than Brandon Nemo. I'd like guys on base for Brandon Nemo, but I like McNeil in an RBI spot. And I do think there's a value to Nemo seeing as many pitches as he sees right out of the gate. Look, I wouldn't move Nemo to nine. It's an idea I've always talked about. And it's a suggestion, and there's a theory behind it that I think people would understand why I want guys batting ninth who are good hitters. I don't believe the ninth spot in the order should be this dead spot. It's why I started believing in the pitcher not batting ninth anymore. Like, I was all on board the last five years because I agreed. First of all, I'm going to pinch hit for him by the sixth inning anyway, so it's going to be guys off my bench. I'd rather put a productive hitter batting ninth because that guy's a table setter for my RBI hitters. But Nimmo, in theory is the ideal leadoff hitter for this team. Making contact at the top of the order is really not that important. Like, that's one of those, it's an old school theory of, my leadoff hitter needs to, he can't strike out a lot. Well, why? I just want the guy to get on freaking base. When there's an RBI opportunity, I care more about making contact. I mean, first and third, one out, Brandon Nimmo or Jeff McNeil. I'd probably say Jeff McNeil partially because he puts the bat on the ball. Like, Nimmo strikes out. 
So I think when you really think about it, that's why the evolution of the game isn't always a bad thing. People like to assume, oh, that's new age thinking. Well, some of the new age thinking is right. I hate to tell you that. I, I consider myself still pretty old school, but there are a lot of new school thoughts that when you really think about it, you're like, well, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, I think Buck has been really consistent with this lineup. I have mostly enjoyed it. It's a reminder that as fans, we always look for things to complain about because when teams are struggling, the manager changes the lineup too much. So it's been a huge critique of Aaron Boone. It was a huge critique of Luis Rojas. Very common era critique now. Lineup changes too much. Buck Showalter has stuck with the same four guys in the same order at the same positions basically every day. And is that better than switching your lineup all the time? Look, I think lineups can sometimes be a little overrated. Guys just have to produce. But it's a good thing. It's just the problem is when you're not hitting, we're all looking for things to change. We're all looking for what can we do to change things. The changes guys have to produce. The changes Pete Alonzo needs to have better at-bats. And at least in this doubleheader, he did do that. And hopefully he carries that over to the series against the Miami Marlins. Uh, I'll be back with Craig actually doing a full show. If you heard us on Wednesday, we were on for 22 minutes. Actually, less than that. I think we signed off at 218 because of the Yankee doubleheader. Uh, So we will have full shows uh, Thursday and Friday. And then all of next week, we are back. And then Joe and I will do a show together this Saturday on WFAN at 10 a.m. You can check out Hoffman with Tiki and Tierney, 10 a.m. on the fan. Like I mentioned, me and Craig, 2 o'clock. We'll be back with another edition of Rico Bronia right after the Miami Marlins series where hopefully we'll all be in a really good mood. Thanks for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.